Iridesco, A Homer's Odyssey by Kitty Fisher. Episode 5, Stool Pigeon. When they awoke, it was still chilly. A few individual joggers circled the park and water birds glided across the mirrored surface of the serpentine, their chicks following behind like fluffy bumper cars. Cherry blossom floated down from the trees and gathered on the paths, piling up like pink snowdrifts. The pigeons shook their feathers and fluffed out their wings. They were going to Trafalgar Square, the ancient site of the Grand Pigeon Council. At Speaker's Corner, a lone man stood in an upturned box. He held a sign attached to a piece of timber and shouted out to the early morning joggers and cyclists. The end is nigh. Repent your sins, for God will smite you down. The apocalypse is upon us. The pigeons flapped their wings to gain height and flew east along Oxford Street. The shop fronts at ground level competed for attention. Mannequins with horses' heads draped in jewels and drinking from china teacups. Winged books suspended in the air like a flock of birds and giant images of bored groundlings staring at nothing. The pigeons flew higher. Above the shops, crumbling signs and carved stonework suggested a long-vanished world of afternoon teas, Ovaltine and gentlemen's clubs. A pigeon's eye view was certainly more interesting than street view. Roof gardens, attic windows and artist studios revealed an array of curiosities. Flapping curtains wafted the scent of perfume and tobacco smoke out into the air. In the junctures of rooftops, mossy nests held bluish eggs or a clutch of yellow beaks opened towards the sky, squawking desperately. They turned south and stopped at a circular clearing. The buildings here were clad with enormous pixelated screens that pulsed with lights. On one side, a fountain offered a comfortable place to perch. A few other birds had gathered here. Most were dipping their beaks in the water or gazing up at the flashing screens transfixed by the lights. Above them, a bronze statue stood poised with a bow and arrow. It was a curious sight, the body of a groundling, but with pigeon's wings. Iridesco stared at it, feeling strange affinity. His father's blood connected him to the world of the groundlings, yet he would always be a pigeon. As he rested with the others, he pondered the significance of this sign. After a few minutes, they cut across Chinatown, weaving through red and gold silk lanterns and pausing for breath on the green ceramic tiles of the gates. The air was still scented with ginger and dried fish, despite the empty streets. Turning left, they flew down Wardour Street and round the side of the National Gallery. They made for a tall, fluted column with a statue perched on top. The monument stood in an open square on a plinth guarded by four lions. Dove glanced up at the statue, taking in the skinny legs and the stick. Her eyes moved down the column to the bronze lions, and her face lit up in recognition. Joe Exotic! This time it was Iago who was confused. The statue has been here for as long as any pigeon can remember. It was given to us by the groundlings as a mark of their respect. I believe the intention was to create a sort of bird table in the middle of London where offerings could be made. Of course, that was before Ken Livingston declared war on us. The square was almost empty of pigeons. Roger had described Trafalgar Square as a meeting place for birds of all backgrounds. They had hoped that in coming here they could get advice about how to survive, yet they had come too late. Just then, a baby pigeon waddled across the desolate square. Iago looked at it and his eyes narrowed, and then he glanced up at the roof of the National Gallery. He adjusted his position on the head of one of the lions and stretched out his wings, fluttering them in the early morning breeze. At that moment, a falcon plummeted out of the sky. It blocked out the sun and shot towards the squab, grabbing it with his talons. As it hunched over the tiny grey mass of feathers, Iridesco noticed something that made his blood run cold. 
a metal ring around the falcon's right claw. At that moment, a stocky groundling in camo gear strolled towards them and whistled. The falcon looked up and, catching sight of the man, flew back to be rewarded with a piece of bloody meat. Lulu and Duff stared in horror. The scene was reminiscent of the time Dolly had been shot down over the fields. Lulu's face frowned with incomprehension. Groundlings using birds to kill pigeons. It made no sense. Iago stepped forward. We should leave here. It's not safe. He glanced down at Iridesco's leg band and opened his beak to speak, but seemed to think better of it. The pigeons flew north to Regent's Park. It was quiet, but rhododendrons and camellias bloomed theatrically and a choir of birds chirped from the bushes and trees. They passed London Zoo, now empty but for the parrots and monkeys that watched them enviously as they flew between the cages. Further west, the canal basin opened out and a cluster of barges were tethered to the towpath. Iridesco looked about nervously. After his encounter with the cats, he was reluctant to stay in this complicated jungle of objects, where every flower pot or open window seemed to conceal a thousand watchful eyes. A willow tree hung over the water from a garden whose lawn sloped down to the canal. The pigeons found a gap in the trailing branches and rested, safely hidden from above and below. The willow hung in pale green curtains that dipped into the water. Standing on a branch, they felt as though they were behind a waterfall. From their hiding place, they could see glimpses of the houseboats and empty restaurants. Swans cruised contentedly through the silent water, and a moorhen wove twigs into a nest, whilst his partner sat in the centre, supervising the operation. The nest builder spied a useful twig and snatched it up, pulling it around to the other side and poking it through the wall of the nest. The pigeons watched as one side grew higher and the other side unravelled. Swimming round to the back of the nest, he pulled another twig and dragged it to the other side. Dove sniggered. The pigeons were still in shock from the events of the morning. Since they had left the safe and sometimes dull life of their childhood in Brighton, they had experienced both wonder and terror. Beautiful countryside and clean air had been eclipsed by death and vicious attacks. Now it seemed that no groundlings were to be trusted. Maybe even Big Daddy and his daughter had turned against them. Iridesco looked down at the band around his leg and wondered. Iago seemed to read his thoughts. I'd keep that hidden if I were you. Not everyone is sympathetic to collaborators. Iridesco felt angry. He wanted to explain that his father would never have collaborated with the enemy, but after the earlier events in Trafalgar Square, it seemed wrong to defend him. He pushed the metal ring further up his leg until it was hidden by his feathers. He wished that he could tear it off and throw it into the canal, but that would have to wait. Just then, a silvery-feathered female entered the enclosure. Despite her age, she was a sprightly bird with a lively expression and beady eyes. Visitors! What a lovely surprise! She hopped excitedly over to the newcomers, extending her long, elegant neck and looking at them more closely. I'm Violet. The pigeons introduced themselves, and Violet invited them to her home. She lived on a barge which had been a bookshop moored on the canal. They entered through a chimney that led to a wood-burning stove. The door of the stove opened out into a cosy room where shelves of books lined the walls and Persian rugs and cushions were scattered haphazardly around the floor. Usually we have an arts club here, but many of the pigeons have been too preoccupied looking for food. It's been a very difficult time, but it has also brought us together. Are you staying in London long? Iridesco paused. We'd hoped to find some answers here to help our families in Brighton, but it seems nowhere safe. Sometimes that's what makes us stronger and helps us to appreciate the good times. Is life very difficult in Brighton? She inquired. Lulu answered. 
When we left, there was a shortage of food. Fights were breaking out. The gulls and starlings were feeling it too. Starling territory is outside McDonald's at the marina, and the gulls control the chip shops around the pier. Pigeons mainly stick to the clock tower, but it's not a strict rule. Then everything closed down and it was every bird for himself. If we can find some answers, we'll return to our families. We want to help them if we can. Violet sat listening quietly. There's a place over in Hoxton Street that we should visit. A lot of pigeons congregate there now. It reminds me of Trafalgar Square in the old days. Pigeons meeting up and talking late into the night. We used to sit outside the National Gallery discussing politics or arguing over nest-building materials. Once we planned to dive-bomb politicians as a protest outside the Houses of Parliament. Those were the days. Her eyes glinted with excitement, and for a second she was the idealistic young pigeon that she had been in her prime. I seem to remember that there were some birds from Brighton that were staying there. They might be able to help you. She hopped about on the shelves until she found a map book and jumped onto the spine, tilting it off of the shelf and onto the cushioned bench. Looking through the pages, she found what she'd been looking for and stabbed her beak at the map. It's just here. Follow the canal northeast and head south towards Liverpool Street Station. Iridesco flew over to the map and studied the route. Ah, you're a racing pigeon, Violet said, opening her eyes with interest. How did you escape? Iridesco felt nervous. He had let the ring slip down his leg. It's not mine. My father died and I inherited it. He didn't tell me much about it. Well, it's a very different life from that of a wild bird. It can be filled with great luxury. The best of everything, but you're never really free. A racing pigeon is owned by a groundling. It must fly where it's told. Marriage is arranged and chicks can be sold by the groundlings. A racing pigeon has many comforts, but is essentially a slave, like a Roman gladiator. I can understand why he chose freedom. Iridesco was intrigued. Violet seemed to know more about his father than George had ever shared with him. Violet continued to talk, enjoying having an audience. My mother was a racing pigeon. She had an arranged marriage, and although she wasn't sure about her chosen partner, he was keen on her, and she made an effort to like him. The groundling introduced him, and then her partner was taken away to race. He never returned. She wasn't interested in remarrying, so she was abandoned by her owner. After almost starving in the wild, she came to London and met my father. Pigeons are less popular with the groundlings these days, but I think us wild birds are lucky. We can choose how we want to live. Iridesco hoped that Violet could tell him more about his parents. Maybe my father abandoned my mother. She died before I was born. He told me he'd let her down. Well, I don't know about that. Racing pigeons are never completely free to choose. Maybe it's enough to know that he was sorry for whatever happened. She looked out of the window at the reddish-orange sky that glowed between the buildings lining the canal. If you want to find help, you should head over to Hoxton Street. It's not safe flying at night. The pigeons had been quite used to navigating via the canal. They'd already flown over a good deal of London, picking up the waterway as it snaked through the capital, disappearing under roads and re-emerging at the other side. Although the city was quiet now, the canal had a rhythm of its own. Lilacs sprouted from cracks on the walls, and butterflies were beginning to emerge now that the cold weather was over. They retraced their route around Regent's Park and the now silent streets of Camden, where the market stalls were boarded up. A lone groundling sporting a pink Mohican sipped thoughtfully from a plastic bottle of cider and watched a family of newly hatched ducks as they swam along the canal. This time, Iago showed them a new aspect of the city. Long, low tunnels took them under the flyovers and roads. 
The cool bricks arched over them, and they flew in darkness towards the white crescent of light that guided them to the exit. The sound of their flapping wings echoed against the bricks, and the smell of the cool water had a calming effect on the pigeons. Water rats scurried around the narrow pathways inside the canal, carrying leftover sandwiches and stolen food from bins. After flying for almost an hour, they spotted the tower blocks of de Beauvoir Estate and flew south away from the water. Amongst the shut-up shops and cafes of Hoxton Street, a few mini-marts were still open. The temporary walls of beer and toilet roll formed a protective barrier from the outside world. Like sandbags in a siege, they cocooned the shopkeepers. Some groundlings scurried rat-like into the shops, relishing the small social interactions available to them. They lingered over racks of Bombay mix and Haribos before retreating back to their lonely nests. The place that Violet had recommended was a record shop and cafe with a wooden bench outside. Posters for gigs that had been cancelled plastered the inside of the front door and cake stands stood empty in the window. Iago tapped on the door and a pigeon looked down from the roof, gesturing for them to follow. They flew up to join him and walked over the tiles to a light well at the back. From here they descended into the cool, musty rectangle of air vents and drain pipes. On the ground floor, a window was slightly ajar, and the pigeons squeezed through the opening into the back room of the shop. A quirky assortment of sofas and armchairs nestled between piles of comic books, spider plants and records. Vintage posters decorated the walls, and jars of cookies and coffee-making paraphernalia stood behind the counter at the entrance. At the back of the shop, three pigeons tapped their feet and cooed rhythmically, engrossed in making music. One stood on a guitar, plucking the strings with its beak and pressing its scaly claws down to make chords. Lulu and the others watched them, entranced by the energy and skill of these pigeons. It was like watching some kind of musical ball game. The rhythm and tune would be picked up by one bird and caught by another, who would then amplify and alter the sound subtly. The music continued to vary but grew in intensity. As the musicians played, the shop filled with more and more pigeons. The sound built up to a crescendo, stopped and then continued with the satisfying exuberant thrash of guitar strings and percussion. Pigeons of all shapes and sizes funneled in through the narrow opening of the window, finding a spot on an empty shelf and flapping their wings appreciatively. Some joined in, cooing, twanging elastic bands with their beaks or tapping their feet on tambourines until the air was alive with sound. Birds were in pigeon heaven. They moved their heads from side to side and strutted along the shelves of knickknacks perfectly synchronised. Soon they were dancing with wild abandon until exhausted the band took a break. As the pigeons rested, a swarthy bird picked up the arm of a record player and placed it carefully on the black vinyl disc. The stylus crackled and bounced before a soulful voice wound through the shop and each bird settled down to enjoy it. The birds took sips of water from saucers under plant pots or helped themselves to crumbs. Duff was soon chatting to one of the band and Iridesco and Lulu sat on the shelf above the counter. There was an awkward silence. Normally Lulu was the confident one always ready with a joke or a story. But since they'd left Brighton, so much had changed. Duff seems happy, pointed out Lulu. I wonder how our families are getting on. Iridesco thought of Mara and wished that she was here now to give them advice. But this situation was like no other. Famine and now war, birds fighting against other birds. Whatever happens, we need to stick together. Maybe some of the groundlings can't be trusted. They can't all be against us. Do you think we should go back to Brighton? asked Lulu. I'm not sure. Iridesco remembered how Dolly had been shot, 
and realised that wherever they were, there would always be danger. Maybe this war was something that was spread out of London until every groundling turned against pigeons. Would they be hunted down until none of them were left? Maybe there were no answers, just an endless struggle for survival against dwindling odds. If that was the case, Brighton was as good a place as any to end their days. We should at least get a message back to them, said Lulu. Yeah, I guess you're right. Just then, a group of pigeons pushed in through the window and swooped onto the counter. They spread out, perching on the shelves around the coffee machine. A small grey bird pointed its claw over to Iridesca and Lulu. He's the one, the stool pigeon. I recognise his leg band. A weary-looking female stepped forward, her face twisted up with pain and anger. She stared at Iridesco, hatred in her eyes. How dare you show your face here after what happened to my son? Did you leave him to him? You were there, weren't you? Why didn't you warn him? He was just a kid, she snarled. Confused, he thought back to the morning and the encounter with the falcon in Trafalgar Square. It had all happened so quickly. The empty square, the tiny pigeon walking alone. He remembered the metal leg tag the falcon had worn and shuddered. If only George was still alive, there was so much he wanted to ask him. The angry female lunged forward and pecked viciously at him, before collapsing in a heap and being helped away by the others. By now, the pigeons in the shop were aware of the commotion and stood watching accusingly. Muttering and whispering, they turned their backs on him and left the shop in disgust. Iridesco turned to Lulu. My father worked for the groundlings, but he was no traitor. I just wish I'd had a chance to find out more before he died. He looked down at the band and pushed his beak between his leg and the metal, the way he'd seen Seth do the night that they'd left the countryside. Opening his beak with all his strength, he forced it apart until it was wide enough to step out of. Kicking it onto the floor, he turned away from Lulu and wiped his eyes. Iridesco and Lulu found Dove talking to Roma, one of the pigeons who'd been playing the guitar earlier. Iago was nowhere to be seen, but returned in time to take them back to the globe. Dove had decided to stay in the record shop where the musicians were still jamming using some old bongo drums that they'd found in the storeroom. Roma promised to bring Dove back to the theatre the next morning, so they said goodbye and squeezed back through the window and into the cold night air. They flew over the grey arched roofs of Liverpool Street Station and back down towards Southwark Bridge. The weather had changed and an icy wind cut into their faces, making their eyes water. By the time they reached the river, the waves were slapping viciously up against the stone embankment. Vessels moored on the wooden piers crashed together and the streets were deserted. Any pigeons that might have been about were huddled together in the relative safety of window ledges or under railway arches. Iago pushed on towards the bridge, glancing back as Iridesco and Lulu struggled to keep up. Without knowing the way, it was sometimes impossible to see where he was going. As the black outline of the bridge loomed to their right, Iago shot forward between a floating Chinese restaurant and a river cruiser. Lulu was just behind and Iridesco followed, but at that moment a huge wave smacked against the cruiser, shunting it towards him. Flying as quickly as he could, he blindly followed the others as the gap diminished. He sucked in his breath, feeling the size of the vessel brushing against his feathers. It was still a long way to the open water and he had no chance of outflying the moving sides of the boat. He could only hope that the impact would be sudden. Closing his eyes, he tensed his body and waited. In front of him, the gap disappeared and water shot towards him. Dodging it, he leapt over the fender and slid down the other side as the rubber ground against the hull of the boat. He was now flying over the river. The waters below were black and fast flowing. 
The icy wind that had blasted them as they flew over the city seemed to funnel downstream so that they had to fly upriver just to remain on course. Eventually, they reached the other side, but they were much farther east than they intended. Scrambling to the shelter of a doorway, they huddled in a grey shivering heap until dawn. The next day, the stormy weather was replaced by a thick fog. The three birds flew low over the narrow streets of Southwark. Shapes appeared unexpectedly in front of them. The golden hind hovered like a deserted pirate ship, and the stone finials of Southwark Cathedral pointed dangerously skyward like the teeth of a long-dead sea monster. When they finally reached the globe, it was a relief to climb the thatched roof and swoop down into the sheltered theatre beneath. Expectant parrots still sat contentedly on their eggs, and red dozed in a patch of weak sunlight, whilst biscuits nibbled on a stale lemon puff. Dove and Roma had not yet arrived, so Iridesco flew down to the riverbank to look for them. Lulu felt too exhausted to move, but Iago disappeared behind a velvet curtain. As the fog evaporated and the sun reached higher over the thatch, two pigeons flew into the theatre and settled on the stage. It was Dove and Roma. Roma was a tall, thin bird with a pronounced beak and hooded eyes. His exotic appearance contrasted with the youthful innocence when he spoke. How was your flight back last night? The weather was quite bad. You're a bit worried about you, he said. It was pretty scary, admitted Lulu. Roma paused, unsure what to say. We had a good time last night. Thanks for coming over. It's great to have visitors. We loved it too. It's a great place. Yes, we were lucky to find it. We moved from Brighton last year and came with some friends. They always seem to be having a party, pigeons dropping in, helping each other out. It's a nice atmosphere. Lulu looked at Roma with renewed interest. He probably knew many of the birds around the clock tower and the seafront. Eddie the Eagle was the one who suggested we should leave Brighton, said Lulu. Do you know him? The crazy guy who hangs around the clock tower begging for grubs. Yeah, everyone knows Eddie. But he's probably right about Brighton. It's a tourist town, so it's harder for pigeons now, especially when they have to fight with the seagulls for scraps. In London there are more parks and miles of suburbs in every direction. Takeaway food isn't good for birds. Roma looked around as if checking that the coast was clear. I hear you had some trouble last night, he said, looking directly at Lulu. I think those birds that came in were tipped off. Lulu looked incredulous. Tipped off? What do you mean? Iago was outside when you were sitting by the counter in the record shop. He told everyone that Iridesco gave a signal to the falcon, flapping his wings to attract attention. Like a stall pigeon luring the other birds to their death. Lulu frowned. If Iri did that, he certainly hadn't known that it would act as a signal to attack. Don't worry about it. If anyone could have saved the squab, it was Iago. He knew the falcon would be around there at that time. He should have kept away. That bird's trouble. Lulu thought back to the events of the morning. She couldn't remember what had happened before the attack. Although the yellow-scaled claws and hooked bloody beak seemed to be permanently seared into her mind. As she tried to piece together the chain of events, Iago emerged from behind the curtain. Would anyone care for a morning swim? He said, smiling pleasantly. Lulu opened her beak to speak, just as Iridesco returned. Seeing that Dove and Roma had arrived, he greeted them and agreed that a swim in the river would be the perfect way to start the day. She decided she would wait to speak to Iridesco when they were alone.
thank you for listening. Iridesco, A Home is Odyssey, was written and narrated by Kitty Fisher, with music from The Big Push. For more information and a full list of credits, please click on the link below.